Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. You know we are growing around here at Meadowlark Media. We are adding a lot of voices and people and talents and expertises that are someone and people that I think that you are going to really grow to admire and love their work if you don't already. And Lynn Novick has been someone who has been making great documentaries with Ken Burns for a long time. The latest is Hemingway. It is exhaustive. It is profound. It is humanizing. It is complicated. And I want to talk to her about that because it, like much of what she makes, is artful on Subject matter where the degree of difficulty, I don't believe people understand how hard it is to go through archives and keep that visually stimulating when you're going through such dense and complicated subject matter. So anyways, I'm thrilled to have Lynn Novick doing advisory stuff and consulting stuff for Metal Arc Media and thrilled to have her on with us now to talk about her latest work, which is, as I said, as all of them seem to be, Lynn, and thank you for joining us, exhaustive did you enjoy this process? Are you someone who enjoys the meticulous thoroughness of having to go through every piece of dust and particle in <laughs> someone's past and bring it to life? Well, thank you, first of all, Tan, for having me. And I'm really excited to be working with all of you. And, you know, just to say that I don't think enjoy is probably the right word. It's totally absorbing and captivating and you just lose yourself in a story and the material. And that's a wonderful feeling. I, I think it's almost akin to what I've heard described as flow, where you sort of lose track of everything else and you're just in this mode of total immersion in a story and a subject. And it accumulates over time. The more you learn, the more you ask questions, the more you want to dig deeper. And one of the wonderful things about the work we do is how collaborative it is. So we have a, a credible team of producers who dig deep for all the archival material that Ken and I get to review with our editors and with our producer, Sarah Fostein. So you sort of just try to get your arms around a subject and let it all wash over you and then respond to the material as you go along. Is it healthy for you or anyone to spend this much time of immersion and whatever mm. must be obsessive compulsive in <laughs> sort of learning because you're, you're providing you what you're, what you're aspiring to. What I can see in your work is this is going to be the most complete and last word on this subject. We are going to give you every wow. morsel of information mm. that you've ever needed to know about what this person's life was, because you get in there with a level of profundity and depth that I rarely see in work. Oh, wow. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, I hope we're never the last word because another filmmaker would have made a very different film about Hemingway, just as comprehensive, for example. So we pick and choose the things we think are interesting and important to highlight. And if it were you doing it, you'd probably pick other things. So, you know, we shine our light where we think the story takes us. And there's a certain kind of serendipitous process to that. Like, for example, the writers that I um, interviewed for the film who appear on screen we didn't know at the beginning who they would be or what they would say. And someone else could go and talk to 10 other writers and have a completely different perspective on Hemingway. So I think what we hope is that we open the door to an audience to getting to know a subject and to 
fall in love with that subject as much as we do. And I'm not saying fall in love with Ernest Hemingway. He's a very problematic figure, especially for our time. But to be sort of captivated by the story of his life as we were, and that's what we hope to share. What did you think was the hardest or most complicated, challenging mm. thing to be found in this? Because yeah. there was a lot of it. Yeah, there is a lot. I mean, I think the challenges are on multiple levels. As filmmakers, I think one of the central challenges was that if we're making a film about someone who's really an artist, he's an artist with words. So, but we're making a film, which is a visual medium and words aren't really all that visual ultimately. You know, I like to read, but when I'm reading, I'm imagining in my head what I'm reading on the page. So we had to find a way to showcase his art and his genius with words visually. And uh, going into it, we knew that was gonna be really, really difficult. And it would take a lot of trial and error. So sometimes we might be, let's say he's written a short story about a man on safari in Africa. Okay, are you gonna look at real people on safari in Africa from the 1930s? Or are you going to be looking at live cinematography of Mount Kilimanjaro? Or, you know, what are you going to look at? Because you got to look at something. So it was really a very difficult process of trying to find visuals that would give the audience a sense of imagining the story and not having it feel like paint by numbers. That was a challenge. And I think on, on a more existential question, the challenge of Ernest Hemingway, the human being, his uh, he created a persona for himself, the super macho man about town who knew everything. He hunted, he fished, he loved bullfighting. He was married many times, you know, um, he drank too much. There's sort of a an encrusted persona that's not a real person. And so how do you penetrate that and get through to the human being that he didn't want the world to really see? And then when you do that, are you going to like this guy or not? And all of those things, you know, just as storytellers and biographers trying to make sense of the person was also hugely challenging. Are you? Are you going to like the person? Well, I hope the audience for the film will make up their own mind and we won't tell you what to think. And probably I would imagine people come away with mixed feelings, you know, maybe some compassion for him because he really did suffer from some very challenging things, mental illness, head injury, repeated head injury, and potentially CTE as a result of that, um, alcoholism, loss, grief, war trauma, you know, and he was also living in the sort of time when being a white man of a certain background carried a lot of privilege, but also a lot of constrictions and who you could be and what you could be. So, you know, it, it was not an easy life being Ernest Hemingway. I didn't think there was anything that summoned more empathy from me on what I viewed as not just selfishness and narcissism, uh -huh. but uh, just cruelty as well. Uh -huh. The concussion stuff really hit me in the face and it's in like, oh, this person's not well. Like, how could this person be well? Exactly. And we're really grateful. There was a, a psychiatrist named Andrew Farah who wrote a book called Hemingway's Brain, which came out when we were working on the project. And he details every concussion and the kind of symptoms he experienced at that time and subsequently, and then the deterioration mentally late in life as the accumulated effect of basically eight or nine serious concussions from car crashes, from war being blown up in war, from something heavy falling on his head, and um, also two plane crashes, not to mention brawling and falling down and just, I mean, his brain was a mess. And you see it at the end 
of his life or toward the end of his life where he's um, giving an interview after he's received the Nobel Prize. And he was so anxious about being able to do this because he was so unwell that we realized that he had cue cards written out and he knew the questions and he was going to read the answers. And he says, he's asked the question, what are you working on? And he says, my new novel is set in Africa, period. It's about the people, comma, and the animals, comma. And you're realizing he's reading the punctuation. And psychiatrists that I know have said that is a very classic uh, manifestation of the kind of head injury that he suffered. What did you find the place that brought you the most compassion for him mm -hmm. as you told his story and saw some of the cruelties mm -hmm. and some of the awful? Well, I do come back to his work. I got interested in making the film because I do love some of Hemingway's greatest novels and short stories. And there's a, the power of language, the poetry, the powers of description, and his wrestling with the way human beings hurt each other and don't say what they really feel and just try to deal with the existential question of mortality and the unfairness of the fact that you could be walking along the street one day and the next day you can be hit by a car and it can all be over. And you know that basic fundamental issue we all face and how he looks it right in the eye and tries to at least show it and not sugarcoat it is profound and beautiful. So I find that's where I come back to is his work. And how do you pair that against while I'm watching it? He's basically, it felt like to me, using love or using women as fuel for muses to give him the richness that he needs in order to write these books and access these places. But he's also in a relationship, just a, a total disaster of neediness, of uh, dependency, and of the rules don't apply to me, only to you. I can't disagree. It would not be an easy job to be married to Ernest Hemingway or to be the child of Ernest Hemingway. He did not treat the people closest to him the way I would want to be treated. And that neediness and anxiety and insecurity and vulnerability maybe gave him the you know, emotional capacity to write well about these things, but in his personal life, he doesn't just fall short, uh, he's a disaster. And it's painful to watch, it is painful to watch. And yeah, you sort of feel that, and this is true of a lot of artists, and we do tend to forgive them for their trespasses if the art is good enough, but I don't think we should, that everything is grist for the mill, you know? So if you're friends with him, you're likely to end up in a book in a caricature of yourself and you might not be happy about it. You know, that happens. Or if you're married to him and he's writing a short story about a horrible wife and what a bitch she is. And, you know, I always think if, if I had been married to Ernest Hemingway and he wrote that story while I was married to him, speaking of Snows of Kilimanjaro or Short Happy Life or Francis McCumber, the women in those stories are portrayed so horribly. That's hurtful. There's just no getting around that. These are great short stories and the people who he sort of represents could not have felt anything but hurt, I would imagine. Did you feel any loss of respect in going through everything in his life for the work? Or are you able to con you know, separate yourself, be non-judgmental as a documentarian, and the work is the work and it stands alone? That's a great question. I, I don't know that I can really fully answer it. I don't think there's an easy answer for that one. You know, we were interested in his life and who he was and, and how his life affected his work and vice versa. So it's hard to separate. I'm not of the school of thought that you just leave the art in isolation and the person doesn't matter. 
and I don't think there's a way to reconcile it. So I, I guess I hope we can kind of hold in our heads or hearts, this is a complicated, problematic person. And he hurt a lot of people and he took what he wanted and he ended his life tragically. And he also left us with some timeless works of art that are worth reading. Can you explain to me your process with Ken on what you choose as subject matter? Because it seems like you guys are going to degree of difficulty, dry places told over a long time that requires the viewer to be discerning and committed to, mm. hey, this is going to be something that is slow and heavy, but you're going to immerse yourself in it. I'm just curious about your process because you guys choose things that are so sprawling and impossible that yeah. you must be making difficult choices on purpose. <laughs> every topic, every subject, every film we've made has its own particular reason why we chose it and not for the degree of difficulty, but I guess, at least for myself, feeling, you know, the more you do this and the more you feel you understand how to make these kind of stories come alive on screen, the more you might aspire to something that's going to be hard. So for me, the hardest thing wasn't Hemingway, but was the Vietnam War. That was an unbelievably difficult project because of how unsettled the history was and how divisive it is and how people don't agree on what happened, let alone why or whose fault it was or anything. And then on top of that, kind of grasping, really trying to understand the Vietnamese perspectives on the war and what their experiences were and how we didn't know that as Americans, trying to pull all that together was enormously hard. And I think for myself, I'll say it was anxiety provoking doesn't begin to cover it. Just, you know, <laughs> terrifying is actually what the word I would say. It's just terrifying at the beginning, but having some degree of confidence in the process we go through and in the collaboration with Jeff Ward, our writer, Sarah Potsdam, our producer, our Vietnamese producer, Ho Tang Hoa, and just feeling like we're going to figure it out as we go along. We will keep our minds open. We will try things out. We'll just see where it takes us and hope it works out. Philosophically, what is your relationship with that terror? Is the terror where you have to go? Because you cannot choose things like the war, baseball, prohibition, the Vietnam War, college behind bars. These are not things that you can choose unless you're deciding, I want to do the most difficult crossword. I don't <laughs> You're purposely doing things that are that you know are going to be hard. Like that's part of that's that. I don't yeah. want to say the joy, but the fulfillment of having done it afterward, because it, it can't. None of it can be joyous. It can't be. Well, it can be joyous actually. That's the interesting thing. I don't know why, but in the terror, putting one foot in front of the other and just moving forward, not knowing where you're headed, is terrifying, but also exhilarating in that it can be so open. So I'll just, I, I don't know. I think I don't go into it thinking, oh, this is going to be really unpleasant and I'm going to have a stomach ache and I'm going to be just mortified and terrified, but more out of that terror and sort of fear of not knowing what you're going to do comes a kind of energy to try to figure it out. It could be paralyzing, but actually it can be very energizing. So it's getting off the plane in Hanoi and saying, okay, I've never been to Asia. I don't speak Vietnamese. I'm going to figure out a way to navigate this place, find people who can help us and just talk to people and understand what is the war? What does it mean to them? And over time, uh, we'll figure it out. So it's kind of exciting. A lot has changed over the years, but you know, one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 
and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall, I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12 ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16 ounce cans. They usually come in a four packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler, you put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. The Vietnam War, is that the most fulfilling project that you have done because of the terror and because of that? Or would you regard something else as the most fulfilling? Just something that when you were done with it, you were like, man, that was just really rewarding work. And I'm a little extra proud of it for whatever your reasons. Yeah, the Vietnam War was a profound experience. And I think getting to know so many Vietnamese people who lived through it and American veterans and people who protested the war and knowing that it was such a traumatic experience for so many people in so many different ways to figure out ways for them to share that story with us and to kind of absorb it was often very painful and completely devastating, but also, I don't know, it felt like this really matters. People need to hear this story and people are going to be grateful for the way we've told it, hopefully. And we were grateful to be present when uh, the people that, we got to talk to you, told us their stories. And I, I like to hope that it helped them too. So uh, I interviewed a woman named Jean Marie Crocker, who was a gold star mother of the Vietnam War. Her son Mogi had died in the mid sixties when the war was still kind of at the beginning of the big escalations. And, you know, 40 years later, she was still remembering the day she got the news that he had died, like it was yesterday. And asking her to tell that story was, well, just hard. And I worried afterwards that, you know, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do to ask someone to relive a trauma like that. But after the film came out and speaking with her, she said it really helped her to tell the story. And she felt it could help other people who'd been through that. And she heard from people who also had lost children in Vietnam and other wars and that somehow her generosity of going through that pain again, it helped her to heal. So that's not always true. And I don't want to be, you know, overly simplistic about it, but I hope that sometimes even though we're asking people to share extremely painful experiences. It is for the greater good. Was there anything in Hemingway, not hard like that, but mm. that was a moral challenge or something? Hey, should we be doing this? Is this the right thing? Like how many of those crossroads, when you're, when you're exposing so much mm. of a man's life, and this is a public man, but yeah. when and, and he's gone, and, and you're, beat, you're trying to be fair at every turn, but did you find yourself in any moral crossroads there? Not to the same degree, I would say, because Hemingway's gone, like you said, and he made his own bed, so to speak. I was very acutely aware, and I know Ken and Sarah and Jeff were too, of just how would the film land for, let's say, his family. I mean, he's a real person. His son Patrick is still alive. I interviewed him. I know him pretty well. He was incredibly generous with us. And at one point he said, you know, he loved his father. He thought he had a wonderful childhood. It was incredibly special to be Ernest Hemingway's son. But then when he talked about Hemingway's very complicated relationship with another son, Gregory, who liked to dress in women's clothes and was definitely on the gender fluid spectrum, Hemingway, the father, was enraged and horrified by this. And they had an enormous conflict over it. And Patrick, in describing this, 
dynamic said it was very difficult to be Ernest Hemingway's son. And he said, I don't know if you're familiar with, there's a painting by Goya called Kronos eating his children. That's a horrifying image. And knowing that Patrick felt many different things about his father, I did carry the burden of making a film that would be tough on Hemingway. And Patrick, there's no one tougher in a way, but it's his dad. So how do you integrate that? It's very difficult. So I think it was very generous of Patrick to give us access to his father's work and say, you tell the story that you think should be told. Let the chips fall where they may. We're not going to tell you what to say. Well, I'm sure there'll be parts of this film we won't like, and I'm sure there are. So we had to kind of carry that. Did you talk to him afterward? Do you know how he felt about the film? Yes, I, they, they love the film. And they've gotten a ton of great responses from friends and people they know and don't know. So the family, as far as we know, is very happy with the film, which I think says a lot about them because, as you said, it's tough on Hemingway. Well, you are so exhaustive, though, and you're trying to be fair. And the detail, you're clearly, you're bending over backward, trying to just tell the story and not be judgmental about it. Has there been a criticism that you have seen that has been fair? I haven't seen much criticism because mm. you guys, you guys, I don't know, I don't want to say that you're immune to criticism, but you tackle subject matter so thoroughly that it is hard to criticize. <laughs> oh, uh, well, look, we welcome criticism, frankly. I always appreciate really thoughtful critiques of our work because I learned something and often a, a writer or a critic is looking at something from a different perspective than the way we chose to look at it. I haven't seen too much criticism of Hemingway. And frankly, I, I expected that there would be more because of his very nature of who he is. He's a white man of privilege who occupies or had occupied a very high position in the world of literature. And we're in a moment where we're questioning and challenging that privilege and that right to be considered a great writer, given who he was and given his misogyny and given the racism that's in his work and anti-Semitism. I think I'm not surprised, but I'm, I'm glad that we were able to present a portrait of him that is nuanced and complicated and doesn't shy away from holding him accountable for these things. So that criticism is out there, but it hasn't been as much as I thought it might be. I don't know how long you have to work on something like this. Years seems obvious. So how much did the story change with just the way America changed over the last 36 months? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a really hard question because we did start working on this film six years ago and we were well into editing. We were almost done with the film last summer, but the questions of Me Too and systemic racism and reckoning with our history have been around for a while. So, and Hemingway scholarship has certainly been engaging with these questions for the last generation. So it's impossible to really answer that. I'm, I'm sure that the moment we're in or have been in the last five years affects who we interviewed, what we asked them, what we put in the film, what questions we want to know about Hemingway, why he matters today or doesn't. We see the world as we are now through the lens of the world we live in. It's impossible not to. And how do you imagine for the people who have not seen the film and are just listening to this with a curiosity, what will you say to them they will probably find most problematic? Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of ground you're covering here, a mm -hmm. lot of subject matter. It's all very nuanced, but to the people who mm -hmm. don't have a familiarity with the subject matter, mm -hmm. you would say they're going to find what to be the most egregious stuff to hear. I think that's hard to say. I, I probably have people watch and make up their own mind. I, you know, he's a human being struggling to make sense of the world. 
and he sees a lot of aspects of life that aren't pretty as he says he wants to put in the good and the bad and the ugly as well as what is beautiful and otherwise his work won't be true so i think the most one of the most fascinating is this whole question of masculinity and how it became kind of a straitjacket for him uh, and we haven't talked about this but you know as scholars have known this for a while but i think a general audience doesn't know that he was very drawn to and experimented with a kind of gender fluidity in his intimate life and was interested in and there's evidence for sort of role playing with his intimate partners in different ways and playing the part of the girl in bed and we're not really sure what that meant but it's an interesting way to see that the masculinity that i think is extremely problematic is masking something very different and it showed in the relationship with the son you didn't interview right like there was some loathing there that was directed as his son because he wasn't being honest with himself about what manhood meant to him and he was clearly buying into his own myth of i have to be the hunter the boater masculine manly man even though i'm not in private exactly exactly yeah and that stuff was a bit jarring to watch. I did not know, like, I don't know when it is that you're studying this, how much learning you're doing and how much knowledge you have on the front end. Uh, how can you break that process down for yeah. in terms of years of reporting on something, mm -hmm. nothing but learning the entire time? That's one of the best parts of my job is that I'm always learning. And most of the films that I've made with Ken, I start off at a very low bar of not knowing very much, just knowing enough to know that I'm interested and that it seems like it would be a worthwhile topic. That was certainly true of baseball many years ago, and it was true of jazz, it was true of Frank Wood, right? It was pretty much true of every topic except the Vietnam War I kind of knew a bit more about. So Hemingway, I'd read a lot of his work. I didn't know much about his life. I'd read one biography. So every day was an adventure. Every day I was learning something. And that's wonderful, it's such a privilege. I don't remember everything that I learned. I don't remember everything that I didn't know before, but I know that at the beginning I had a very, I'd say simplistic idea of who he was and not a very deep understanding of his work either. Can you take us through the mining for stuff? Like how meticulous is it? How often are you calling Ken with, holy shit, you're not gonna believe this? <laughs> oh, um, Ken and Jeff and Sarah and I are on the phone all the time. Oh my God, you won't believe what we just found, 100%. And our producers are often, going to the archives, you know, in case of COVID virtually, but otherwise in real life, going to an archive and coming back with material and saying, take a look at this. You won't believe this picture. You won't believe this quote. You won't believe this piece of footage that we found. And the more we see, the more we kind of understand the full range of the person. In Hemingway's case, he was a pack rat. He saved everything. And his mother was a pack rat and she saved everything. And so they have family albums like you would not believe of his entire childhood and all of his siblings, they each have a photo album made by the mother with pictures of every stage of life and captions. You can kind of eavesdrop on his private conversations with everyone in his life because every letter he ever wrote, he saved. So if you can imagine everyone went through every email you ever wrote and every phone call you ever had and pulled out the interesting parts. So you, you sort of, it's an extraordinary life that in that it is so well documented. And that was a revelation every day.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. His life was already so big, it seems ridiculous to add some other layer of mythology to it. Like, the whole thing seemed absurd. The government favors that allow him to just, you guys are dropping as an aside. I think that he was, he was I, I don't even understand that he was dealing with Russia or that he was getting all sorts of government access to things just because he was the famous Hemingway. And, and you have him at one point just in a war voluntarily sort of running and screaming across a, a, some oh. sort of jungle landscape. Like, what was that? He's lived <laughs> two plane crashes on a surviving two plane crashes on one African trip. His life was plenty interesting and big without the mythologizing. Yeah, well, he outdid himself in a lot of his public life and he put himself into situations. I think he had these just, you know, what we would now call grandiosity. So he just knew he was important. He thought he belonged in these certain places. He had a lot to say and people should listen to him. And so he, he put himself into all kinds of situations, running with the bulls in Pamplona to start with, you know, which has become such an iconic thing. Um, in World War II, he was a correspondent, but he was so dedicated to the cause and he was so excited to be there, ultimately, even though he didn't want to go in the first place, that he ended up actually becoming a combatant and shooting guns and trying to kill people, Germans, the enemy, obviously, but, and thinking that was okay, which it really wasn't. And he got away with it which he did with a lot of things in his life. You can't make this stuff up. You can't. Anything that you regard that you would put number one on sort of most shocking, like in terms of revelations, mm. because it, there, it, it was replete with them. Every time it seemed like there was a whole lot of, you've got to be shitting me. Like what, how many times is this dude going to get hit in the head? Like what? Yeah. Like, are you kidding me that he's just going to continue to have that the, the greatest American writer of our time, maybe any time that this person is clearly mentally ill because he has taken way too. He's crazy because he's taken way too many blows to the head. I agree. I think that was a huge revelation to really. And I don't think that that was understood until the last 10 years of what's happened in sports where we've really seen because of the NFL and the hockey and just, you know, seeing what happens to athletes, that's exactly what's going on with him. And I don't think, I, you know, scholars have known this about Hemingway for years, but no one put the pieces together to really see his mental deterioration through that light. But Lynn, you are basically, I can't, I kept watching this thinking to myself, wait a minute, what level of crazy are they going to get to when this man births the old man in the sea? That basically mm. a masterpiece for all time is being written by somebody who is just certifiably, medically, clinically, scientifically insane at that point. It's inexplainable. I mean, that cannot be explained. I guess you imagine what he could have written if he was well. That's what I would say. The old man in the sea is great, but it's a short piece. He couldn't manage to write a long novel again. He couldn't even really write a great short story. Like somehow he could get his act together mentally to write that story, but he, he was impaired. So maybe if he hadn't been, he could have written even more brilliant things at that point in his life. I don't know. The Movable Feast, which he wrote later and was never published in his lifetime, has moments of great writing and then some very crazy things in it, I would say. 
what a lonely prison it seemed like at the end of his life to not be able to write, to not mm. be able to go summon the source of, you know, his ego, his genius. It felt sort of like an emotional, artistic version of sort of Parkinson's or where you just sort of get trapped more and more in your body until mm -hmm. you're killing yourself because the pain is so much that you are no longer what you identify with, which is your great work. You are your great work. Mm, it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. And there was no way out for him. Number one, he did not want the world to know that he had a mental illness or was suffering from any kind of mental deterioration or impairment. So he didn't get the best treatment. So who knows, maybe if he had gone to the best psychiatric hospital in the world, maybe he would have, they would have been able to help him. I'm not sure, but he didn't. So, you know, there's a lot of denial going on and just the taboo of mental illness was such that the world closed in on him in such a tragic way. But he also suffered from this kind of psychotic depression where, you know, it's well documented. You, you don't see any way out. You have this tunnel vision that you're never going to get better. It's only going to get worse. There's nothing to be done. And that's where people end up dying by suicide. That's what happened to him. She does great work, exceptionally thorough work. We are thrilled to have it be a part of anything we're doing here at Metal Arc Media. This three-episode, six-hour documentary, whether you are interested in Hemingway or not, whether you're interested in writing or not, it's just an interesting examination of an indisputably fascinating human being. I don't know what made you saddest in it, Lynn, but that clip that you found or showed of him reading comma period as he's nervous to do like a local tv interview and he's doing it very poorly because he's just a shell of himself at that point i, I that was for for some reason to me there was plenty sad in here but i don't know why that hit me the hardest in terms of like oh my god this person is just it was just broken at the end Completely. Uh, that is one of the most devastating pieces of footage I have seen. It's heartbreaking and it's horrifying. It's horrifying, especially thinking this is Ernest Hemingway and he can't read or talk. I'm glad that that clip exists because there's very little footage of him talking. He was kind of seemingly camera shy of video camera or camera with sound. So we don't have much and it, I'm glad it exists. So we have some proof kind of of where he was at. I asked my wife when I saw that clip, because it's deeper into the film, I asked her, is that the first time that we've seen him talking about himself on camera? Because I yeah. couldn't remember whether there, whether you had any documentary footage of him being interviewed. I couldn't remember whether I'd actually heard his voice anywhere in it. You've heard his voice earlier when he, he was in, when he was in the Spanish Civil War covering that. He helped to work on a documentary. I'm putting quotes around that because it's more of a propaganda piece, but called The Spanish Earth, and he's the narrator. You hear his voice narrating it, but that's the only footage that we have of him speaking. There was a contemporaneous clip also done for Cuban television or in Spanish that exists, but that's it. So he, he yeah, it, it's, it says a lot about him. The most famous writer in the world, he did not want to be interviewed with sound. Helps with the mythology though, right? If you can control Indeed. words and control the way you're being portrayed, you can make yourself the incredibly masculine hunter and conqueror of worlds. Exactly, exactly. He's, he was brilliant constructor of his image and protective of it, absolutely. Well, I appreciate that you're joining us and I appreciate the work that you make. Baseball, huh? Are you a fan now? Like, because you came in with very little interest and if you do yeah. not have interest, <laughs> I can't imagine, I would imagine that would be a real tedious project. Uh, all oh, the no, other was... ones you described seem to uh, initiate a great deal of curiosity. I'm surprised mm. baseball did that for you. Really? No, I, I found baseball absolutely fascinating as a vehicle to understand American history. 
you know, it was a lot I didn't know about the early history, especially the color line, the Negro Leagues, the great heroes of the game of the, you know, pre-World War II period. I'd heard names, I didn't know anything about them. So it was wonderful to immerse myself in that and to understand how baseball, how the game was played, how that evolved over time, and especially the tensions between the workers and the owners, you know, I thought was fascinating. The Black Sox scandal, for example, you know, I knew yeah, but that- none of, none of that has to do with baseball though, Lynn. That's just you liking the humanity <laughs> and the stories and the history. That doesn't make you well, a baseball fan. That makes you a fan of being able to tell sports stories or tell complete mm -hmm. human stories through whatever the vessel. Maybe so, I don't know. I, I am a baseball fan. I love going to baseball games. I don't love watching the game on TV. I will say, I think it, it feels the games are long. And so I feel like they, <laughs> I'm with funny. of the camp that they need to you know, move things along. Being in the stadium, it doesn't feel quite as long, but on TV, it feels kind of endless to me. Lynn, you say that with no sense of irony, right? Given the films you make, that probably <laughs> yeah. the greatest the greatest criticism of Ken Burns in your work mm -hmm. is like, God, do they have to do stuff that's that PBS long? That's in the short true. in the short attention span, people need their phones, need this minute information. <laughs> it, my guess is that the work, while it's important and it's great, my guess is I, I'd be curious whether it resonates with young people who do not have an attention span. I'm generalizing here. For how well, for how slow these things can be because you guys are taking your time with great care. Yeah, you know I think a great story well told will find its audience. I'll say that they're not for everybody. We recognize that too. But if you want to be immersed in something and really get to know a topic, you do have to take some time to tell it. Last thing before I get you out of here, you regard what you do as art, right? I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but when you go into these places and you're really tackling, in this case. The subject matter is an artist. Do you regard, and the, the, not only an artist, an artist with words and an artist with storytelling. So mm -hmm. when you try to reach the level of legend that you are telling in the story, do you regard what you're making as art? I don't know. I don't like to put a label on it. I think documentary is such a capacious label. It can mean a lot of different things. I think I would say what we do is not journalism in that we're not trying to tell you just what just happened, but have some perspective on it and do it in an artful way so you remember it and so that it has some deeper meaning. So if that rises to the level of art once in a while, be very grateful. It's not easy to do. It's just hard enough to tell a story. Well, I was told we hired an artist, so I'm very disappointed <laughs> by that answer. Well. Uh, thank you. Yeah, well, the work speaks for itself, though. Lynn, <laughs> I, we are thrilled to have you aboard. Can't wait to be making stuff with you. Same here. Thank you so much. I really look forward to working with all of you. It'll be great. <laughs> A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that hasn't? The great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you, I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good, I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall, I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12 ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16 ounce cans. They usually come in a four packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler, you put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.